Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 79. Today, we're continuing our series focusing on women in leadership, and we have a treat for you guys. We're going to be sharing a learning central workshop that Xenia and I did for our good friends over at New Leaf Network, examining the stories of four pioneering Chinese women in ministry and their legacy, and why their stories and others in history still matter to us today to shape our imagination. Let's do this. Thanks for having us. It's just John and me today, so we're delighted to be here. But I thought that I would start off by telling you a little bit about why I got interested in this, because as I have said multiple times, I am not a historian, and this is not my field. And sometimes I feel a little bit like an intruder. But then I thought, well, then what is my reason for doing this? And two years ago, I got really angry. And usually when I'm angry, it tells me that I'm actually really sad. And I was sad because I was having these conversations with these young women who were saying to me, I can't be in ministry. I can't be in leadership. I'm a woman. And then I said, well, what about all those women who raised you up? What about your pastors who are women? And they said, well, you know, they're just wrong. I said, okay. And I said, tell me a little bit why about you think, about why you think they're wrong. And that's something to the effect of, well, you know, in history, there are no women. And I said, let me tell you. And then I thought, I don't know of any women. So I went on this research dive and this is, this is what came out. And I wanted to walk you through that journey today. And I'm not going to cover all of it because as I, you know, elaborated a few weeks ago, Chinese Christian history is really long and really huge. And there's no way I could talk about all the women, besides the fact that a number of them, uh, we just don't have their stories because they weren't recorded. There's a scene that I was talking with a couple of friends in, in Shang-Chi about meeting the Hall of the Ancestors. And so I'm going to take you into the Hall of the Ancestors today um, and take you into the lives of our ancestors, of our saints, um, and get to hear a little bit about how women were an intrinsic part of the Chinese Christian story. So I'm going to actually begin with a little bit of Confucianism. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's this sort of like, I like to call it the invisible weave that holds uh, Chinese culture together, as well as the other East Asian cultures. And it sets the norms and values by which people abide by. What's interesting about Confucius himself, and as well as Mencius and uh, a couple of the other followers shortly after Confucius, is that reference to women is actually sparse. But where there is reference to women, it's kind of really derogatory. So in the Analects, Confucius writes, women and servants are hard to deal with. So it kind of implies that Confucius understands women to be in a different and inferior social class than men. In another passage, Confucius writes about a woman among the king's ministers and then willfully ignores her as he recounts the flourishing of the king's court. He depicts the woman's role primarily in context to kinship to the male figure, daughter, sister, wife, mother, sister-in-law, mother-in-law, grandmother. They're never their own people. Confucius's book of rights emphasizes the separation of women from men, even within the home. The outer section belongs to the men. The woman stays within the inner section. In the book of documents, a stronger statement illuminates that a wayward woman had the potential to destroy the family. 
it says this, the hen does not announce the morning. The crowing of a hen in the morning indicates the subversion of the family. And then Mencius actually goes on to write that the worst of unfilial acts is the failure to continue the ancestral line. So, you know, they might not talk about women explicitly, but they're kind of peripheral to the understanding of family. And then in the subsequent centuries, the discussion on gender would revolve around the dynamics of yin and yang. The Book of Changes, formalized as part of the five classics in the second century BCE, depicts a woman's role as follows. The woman's proper place for the woman is inside the family, and the proper place for the man is outside the family, when both man and woman are in the proper place. This is the great appropriateness of heaven and earth. Now, the Book of Changes strongly correlates the physical space with the yin-yang cosmology. Harmony is therefore achieved only when everyone assumes the rightful place in the hierarchy, and this is simply the natural order of the universe. So teaching the children and helping the husband are the woman's ultimate mandate and responsibility. And then further defining Confucian gender ideology, a prominent Han Confucian scholar by the name of Liu Xiang, who, who compiled 125 biographies of women to evoke and commemorate an ideal of womanhood. And through these biographies, Leo concludes that there are six desirable virtues, a maternal rectitude, sagely intelligence, benevolent wisdom, chaste obedience, pure righteousness, and rhetorical competence. So uh, with that in mind, I'm going to take you to the 17th century, common era. So in the 17th century, uh, women and men were separated, especially upper-class women. They didn't go into mixed society. So women had their own quarters, men had their own quarters. So the Jesuits who had arrived quickly realized that in order to reach the women, they actually had to reach the men. And so their tactic was, let's convert the men, then they'll convert their wives. So Candida Sue was born into a Christian family. She was known as the Apostle of China by the Jesuits who worked with her. And her grandfather converted and was baptized in 1604 in Nanjing. And only her baptismal name is known. We don't actually know her birth name. And she was named Candida because of the feast day of St. Candida. Her family were devout Catholics. Her mom actually taught Candida and her siblings about the faith. There were devotionals and catechisms and all that. And then Candida actually married uh, Su Yandu at 16. They had eight children, and then she was widowed at 46, which is really when the story begins. So from childhood, she was a pious, devout woman whose main interest in life was her faith. Her husband actually wasn't a believer. He actually became a believer because of her witness. We'll come back to that. Then when she, when her husband died and her children were fully grown, she decided that she was going to fully give herself to serving God and to spreading the gospel in China. So then she funded actually the following, the living expenses for missionaries, building churches, support for printing ministries. She was known for her generosity of poor. And so you're wondering, okay, where does this woman get all this money? Her family actually raised silkworms and they washed and spun silk. Her son was fairly high up in the Qing dynasty, though she didn't actually ask for his help financially. Um, and over the period of 30 years, Candida made the equivalent of several thousand French crowns. And she then gave them to servants to invest. And then that ended up being this great investment um, where she started to build up capital and had a number of commercial enterprises. So in terms of living expenses for missionaries, uh, she actually funded both Jesuit and Dominican missionaries. There's a story where Father Francesco Brancati in Shanghai asked for help for the living expenses of 25 missionaries, some who didn't even have money for food. And Candida made a vow to give to each of them the equivalent of 200 crowns of gold. She had to renew the vow five times, but ultimately she gave over 22,000 francs. 
which is kind of mind-boggling. She provided money for safe passage when missionaries were exiled from China. So she paid their way through, making sure that you know the proper people uh, got the right money so that they would let these missionaries uh, escape unharmed. And then in one incident written like the parable of the Good Samaritan in Philip Couplet's book, Biography, Candida actually took in two Jesuit priests who were beaten and robbed in Jiangxi on the way to their assignments. She brought them home and cared for them for three months. And then later she provided for their ministries as well. She built so many churches. Uh, she financed more than 30 ch- churches and chapels in the lower Yangtze River er- region and then about nine others in other provinces of China. And it, because of how far her reach was, it's likely that she helped almost every Catholic church, chapel, and mission in China. She supported the print ministry in part because she decided or realized that religious books and tracts were really effective means of reaching women with the gospel. So she contributed to having catechal and devotional works printed to help spread the good news. She uh, helped translate and fund translation of 126 devotional books. And then she just gave them away to churches or the women that she knew and mentored. And then for every book that she thought that she found that was burned or destroyed, she tried to replace as many of them as possible. Now, what she was known for her generosity to the poor, right? So uh, there's this really funny story where she had this special door cut into her quarters so that people could come in and ask for help whenever they wanted help. And her son, really concerned for her for his mother's safety, actually walls it up. And so she goes, well, okay, I'm not going to push back on my son, but I'm going to skirt it and I'm going to try some other way to find, to give the poor the help that they need. So some of these sort of ingenious and innovative ways included helping blind storytellers learn their craft of storytelling, and then also teaching them gospel stories so that when they went out to tell their stories as they were earning their living, they were also telling stories of the gospel at the same time. She bought coffins for the poor and paid for funeral expenses, understanding this is mission because there's a particular Chinese concern for proper veneration of the dead. And then this one time, the emperor gave her a robe and headdress for her birthday. And then she wore it very politely at the birthday celebration. But then over the subsequent days, she removed the pearls and silver from the robe and headdress, sold it, and then gave it to the poor. She also started to notice that there were many abandoned and unwanted children, most of whom were, were girls. So she started an orphanage. And this was partly inspired because the Christians in that era were actually adopting these, these girls into their own families. So I talked a little bit about her husband coming to faith because of her witness. And so did her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law's brothers and some of their relatives. And she gathered her children and servants for evening prayer. She taught them Christian doctrine and gave spiritual talks. We would call that preaching, but never mind. And then she served as a leader in the church itself. So because missionary numbers were so low, there was actually quite a dependence on lay Chinese Christians. And Candida was actually the leader of the Congregation of the Blessed Virgin in Songjiang. She mentored the consecrated virgins who taught children the faith, instructed catechumens, and baptized dying babies. They took care of the sick, they helped the starving in times of famine, and maintained local chapels. And these women were probably the most responsible for the continued life of the church during the years of persecution. So in essence, Candida helped prepare the way for native vocations to the priesthood, which she'd been praying for for most of her life. Um, And as I said, her biography was written by her Jesuit confessor, Philip Couplet, who ended up writing it because he wanted her story told and uh, through this biography actually raised more money for the missions. 
It's kind of cool. So we're going to flip to the 20th, 19th, and then the 19th century to my next favorite person. And her name is Dora Yu. Unfortunately, she's only known in the context of Watchman Nee's conversion, which I think is, is too bad because she was, I'm going to argue, the foremost Chinese Protestant evangelist in the early 20th century. She was the first intercultural Chinese missionary of modern times. She was one of the first Chinese people to completely work by faith. She was the first woman to found a Bible school dedicated to the training of Chinese women for full-time ministry. She was the only Chinese person to be a main speaker at the 1927 Keswick Convention. And she was the first generation Chinese revivalist whose work articulated the beginnings of of a distinct Chinese evangelism that ended up inspiring the second generation. You know, what's interesting about this context is now we've got still these Neo-Confucian values floating in the air, but the Westerners actually gave the Chinese a new way of looking at the world, especially regarding family structures and the role of women. So where previously women were restricted to the home and their worth derived by their kinship to a male figure, whether son, husband, or father, any attempt to subvert the hierarchical structure was believed to disrupt the harmony of the universe. They were now actually free to pursue and enter the public world as individuals and could pursue careers previously inaccessible to them. So, you know, when the missionaries actually came in, Chinese women responded to these efforts en masse. So by 1921, women represented about 37% of the Christian population, and some of it is due to people like Dora. So she was born in 1873 at the American Presbyterian Mission near Hangzhou Zhejiang. Her father was studying to be a preacher. He actually converted due to the influence of his wife and mother-in-law at the end of the Taiping Rebellion. His father was a noted Confucian scholar. She went to medical school at 15. Unfortunately, her, her parents both passed away, but her parents actually made quite an impact on her faith. So her faith was intensely personal, and she had this incident where she got lost in the fields, and she heard her father crying out for her, looking for her. And she remembers very intensely that that sensation of her father's love. And she says, that's how I knew the love of God, because I was found by my father. When she got to medical school, her parents passed away, which actually opened the door for her to meet an American missionary by the name of Josephine Campbell, who was her unofficial godmother. So Dora is a little bit strong-headed. She decided because she wanted to serve God without any sort of divided loyalties, she broke off her engagement. What happened was this intensification happened because she felt this profound sense of surrender and of being filled to the brim with the love of God in response to her pleas for forgiveness. And so this intensification actually comes about because of her striving for inner holiness and her constant surrender to God. And this would define her faith and her ministry for the rest of her life. She was one of two women to graduate from this woman's medical school in Suchow. And then shortly before leaving for Korea, she actually preaches at the McTire School for Girls, where she later meets another influential woman whose name is Lin He Ping, who is Watchman Nee's mother. Incidental, I'm going to move on. And while it's not known where in Korea Yu's ministry is located, she was actually responsible for opening up women's work for the Southern Methodist Mission in Korea. So she went with Campbell over there. She was the mission's only physician attending to Korean female patients, as well as as students of a local school. She translated and wrote textbooks, gave Sunday sermons, visited people, and then she burned out, which is very unfortunate. But because of that, she had this moment with the spirit where she felt prompted to return to China. And so Korea left her with two parting gifts, one, a deep abiding love for God, 
and vice versa, like this profound sense of being loved, and as well as the theology of suffering, where she actually saw suffering as a tool of refinement. So from 1903 to about 1908, you actually already predisposed to Wesleyan holiness theology, became more attracted to Keswick spirituality. Might have been a reaction to the liberal Christianity brought over by Westerners and the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And although she was known as a spirit-filled woman, she believes spirit baptism was only for spiritual empowerment and warned against overemphasizing gifts while neglecting the pursuit of the life and love of Christ. So upon her return to China, she cut all ties with Southern Methodists, and then she started to live by faith, which basically means she lived not knowing where her next meal would be, and aligned with the China Inland Mission. She became a full-time evangelist as part of her commitment and was increasingly prominent in leading revival meetings in the Shanghai region. And by 1908, she was accepting invitations outside of this area, ministering in Mandarin, Shanghainese, English, and Korean. By 1909, she was invited to evangelize in the southern provinces. And during this time, she actually saw this need for a different collection of hymns to more accurately reflect the local voice. And so she prepared a hymnal in Mandarin called the Hymns of Revival. And now the 1925 Shanghai Revival is super interesting because it was supposed to originally be a 10-day missions conference led by missionaries. It instead lasted for two months. And this is because these local evangelists, including Dora, started preaching and thousands converted, which prompted one American missionary to rename it a revival because it was clear that this was the spirit at work. And more significantly for the, the story of Chinese history, this was instrumental in the emergence of young evangelists. And you served as a prominent role model figure for these, especially young female evangelists. And I would say that this really marked the turning point for Protestant Chinese Christianity from being missionary-led to being Chinese-led. Dora also had influence in the West. Her travels to England and America in 1913, 1914-ish gave her a really deep friendship where she felt mutually encouraged by those she encountered. As I said before, she spoke the 1927 Keswick Convention in England. And even in England, she was ministering to and had contact with overseas Chinese folks. 1931, when she died of cancer at the age of 58, people still converted at her funeral because they were so convicted by the power of the spirit in Dora's life. Okay, so I'm going to turn our attention to a Canadian now, and her story is pretty neat, if not a little bit tragic. So Victoria Chung, she was born in 1897 in Victoria, BC. She actually has a day celebrated by the city of Victoria. Anyways, her father was one of the first converts to Christianity in Victoria. Her mother had converted in China, and she was actually named Victoria because they were hoping that she might be better accepted by the dominant white society. Their involvement at church brought Victoria into contact with the Chinese rescue home. Victoria was enrolled as a boarder at the school. So her home was a few blocks away. She wasn't like taken away from her home. It was very much, let's enroll her in the school so that she can have a better opportunity. And she was sponsored by the Presbyterian Women's Missionary Society to the University of Toronto to attend medical school. She was one of the first women from BC to graduate from medical school and the first person of Asian heritage to do so. Because she was a Canadian citizen, she actually traveled on a British passport, which is incidentally really interesting because she doesn't show up in evacuation protocols in the war later on. But she felt called to be a medical missionary in China. So she moved to Jiangmen as a medical missionary at the Marion Barclay Hospital, which is now the Jiangmen Central Hospital. 
So what's tragic about this is that a few months before Chang Victoria left for China, the federal government passed the Exclusion Act in response to pressure from the Victoria Chamber of Commerce's Committee on Oriental Aggression and from the BC government to completely prohibit Asiatic immigration into Canada. So her parents, who had lived in Victoria for more than 30 years, ended up joining their daughter in Jiangmen, while her brother Herbert stayed in Canada. And these stories of separation aren't uncommon. She was greatly respected in China. She stayed during the Second World War when other missionaries were evacuated. So that's what I meant. It was, it's kind of strange that she wasn't in the evacuation protocols. And one of the theories for this is because they, didn't, they thought medical missionaries were all white. So they totally just missed her. But part of the reason why she didn't return to Canada was because the Chinese Exclusion Act prevented even long-term residents of Canada from returning to Canada if they had been out of the country for more than two years, which included her parents. And she wasn't going to abandon them in China. She later finds out in 1947 that the federal government's custodian of enemy alien property actually confiscated her Canadian savings account during the war. So even if she could go back, she actually had nothing left for her. But she stayed in China. And she cared not for not only the hospital, but also four other refugee camps. She refused to collaborate with Japanese invaders. And she created medical clinics for Jiangmen's citizens. And she remained the only missionary of her sending organization during the Japanese occupation. And then subsequently, the community takeover. So December 8th, 2017 is Victoria Chung Day in Victoria, BC. But after the Civil War, she decided to stay in China. She was very well respected in part because of what happened during the Sino-Japanese War. But because she was an overseas Chinese person, she was seen as a spy or like as somehow not Chinese and was criticized as an embezzler of hospital funds during the Korean War. She was later exonerated, but it was very clear that if she was going to stay, it it was going to be quite dangerous. And again, she might have returned to Canada post-1949, but the Canadian government's decision not to recognize the People's Republic of China and its continued limiting of Asian immigration actually made any return difficult. So that essentially meant leaving many families like the Chung separated. So Herbert, who had stayed behind in Victoria, actually disappeared, and the family doesn't know where he is. She herself never married, but generously supported a niece, a cousin, and in her 50s, she adopted a son. One of the things about Victoria was that she was very no-nonsense. So then whenever anybody asked her about her ministry, she would say, well, no, that's not important. I'm just here to do the work. And it really showed that she cared quite deeply, even if she wasn't very affectionate in language or tone. When she died of cancer in 1966, Jiang Wen citizens sent 3,000 flower wreaths for her memorial and thousands lined the route of her funeral. And that photo right there is actually a bronze memorial statue of her in the the lobby of the hospital. Unfortunately for us, most of her records were actually destroyed in the Cultural Revolution and her her relatives were actually targeted because they were related to her. It was complicated. All right, last one. She lived in Canada, but we're going to go back to Hong Kong. Florence Lee, born in 1907 in Aberdeen, Hong Kong. At the time, like I said, women, girls weren't especially wanted, but her, her parents, they were completely overjoyed to have her. And so her Chinese name actually means like dearly beloved because they wanted her to know that she was. So she never actually thought that she'd be an ordained priest. She ended up at Union Theological College. And while she was there, she attended a deacon ceremony for another woman. And so the presiding Chinese minister asked, like, here's this English woman who is offering herself to serve the church. 
might there also be a Chinese woman who feels called by God to serve as a deacon? So Florence prays and asks, God, would you like to send me? And her prayer was answered. So she really did think that she was going to be a Bible woman or an evangelist in some village mission, but she was ordained a deacon in 1941. And then she was given charge of uh, an Anglican congregation in Macau, which was at the time overflowing with refugees from war-torn China. She ministered on a full-time basis. She tended to the physical and spiritual needs of her congregation and its neighbors. She baptized, married, and buried, gave counsel and friendship to the grieving. She organized food for the hungry. And in this period of war, she really did keep hope and faith alive among the people. Now, the reason why she could do all of this stuff was because even though she wasn't fully ordained as a priest, the surrounding areas made it quite difficult and eventually impossible for a priest to get to Macau. And so she was given permission to actually give the sacraments to Anglicans. In 1944, she sneaks into China to meet with the bishop who calls himself a coward and says that he never meant to shake, like stir any pots or whatever, but he regularizes her administration of the sacraments by ordaining her as a priest on the 25th of January in 1944, which makes her the first woman to be ordained a priest in the Anglican communion. So unfortunately, post the Sino-Japanese war, controversy erupted. She ended up surrendering her license because she didn't want to cause any more controversy or uh, continue to disrupt anything, though she never did renounce her holy orders. And then post-Civil War from 1958 to 1974, uh, she was forced to undergo political examinations, re camps, labor farms, factories, and political camps. So along with other victims of China's cultural revolution, she lived in virtual obscurity and hardship for more than 30 years. She entered what she says was a very dark period in her life. She actually contemplated suicide. And at that moment, she says that she felt touched by the spirit. She heard God speak to her and say, are you a wise woman? You are a priest. And she says that's when she knew that God was with her and would support her through anything, through all of her adversity. This here's an interesting story. So when she was sent to actually work on the farm to care for chickens, her home was raided several times and her possessions were taken away. And Decades later, people asked her, how did you sustain your faith? Like, how did you, how did you believe that there was going to be hope? And she answered, well, I just went up to the mountain and nobody knew. Uh, so she got away. So eventually she moved to Canada in 1983, where she was appointed as an honorary assistant at St. John's Chinese Congregation and St. Matthew's Parish in Toronto. The Anglican Church of Canada had by this time approved the ordination of women to the priesthood. So in 1984, the 40th anniversary of her ordination, she was reinstated as a priest. And this event was celebrated not only in Canada, but also at Westminster Abbey and Sheffield in England, even though the Church of England had not fully approved the ordination of women. She was also awarded doctorates of divinity by General Theological Seminary and Trinity College at the University of Toronto. She died in February 26, 1992, and she is now buried in Toronto. So what I appreciated about these women's stories is that there's this intense sense of their own calling and that they knew without a doubt that they were loved by God, that they loved God, and that they were willing to risk a whole bunch of things so that they could pursue their calling. And I, I think as I look at their faith and as it gets passed on to me, um, I actually start to wonder like, oh man, this is how on earth do I live up to 
these stories. And the question, and of course, that's the wrong thing to ask, right? Because God has his own calling for me. My inclusion in the story is going to look radically different than theirs. But as I was researching these stories, I felt this sense of camaraderie of being known and of realizing like in this journey, God hasn't actually not provided a history of people that I can look up to, um, that people have gone ahead and that they've actually blazed the trail. And so the next time a young Chinese woman comes up to me and says, hey, I don't think I can be a minister. I'm going to say, well, I've got these four women you should check out and also a whole bunch more. I didn't get to mention uh, Mary Stone or Ida Khan, both of whom were amazing women. And there was even another woman I found last night who was actually one of the signatories at the UN, who was also deeply known for her devout faith. And so I'm just thinking these stories shouldn't be hidden and they still continue to have impact. And John is actually going to share a little bit about what that looks like for us today. <laughs> that was a great setup. Thank you, Xenia. Well, before I begin, I just want to say thank you to Xenia for prepping all of that. And it's interesting because every time she says, you know what, my focus is not history. That is not what I major in. I know that one, I'm always in for a treat because she is so good at it. And secondly, it makes me wonder, I wonder what that means for what she does focus on and she majors in. It must be like the best thing in the world. And so that's why I love learning from Xenia and being under her leadership as well. So, you know, the things that I'm going to be sharing today are, are more along the sides of kind of how, you know, my experiences kind of shape where I'm landing in terms of thinking about women in leadership and in ministry and such like that. And it does connect to Xenia's story because, you know, for me growing up, and this is kind of just the caveat, is these type of stories I had never heard of. I probably never heard of them until like, the last few years. <laughs> and growing up, there were next to none. And I, in fact, I can't even think of one off the top of my head. Pastor who was a woman when I was growing up, let alone a pastor who was leading a congregation. And it's always something that as I was growing up, I had just accepted. And you know that was the way that I was taught in terms of roles, like gender roles and such like that. And it wasn't until later on in life where I started kind of thinking, oh, why is that the case? Where did all of this come from? And then just listening to stories of women and listening to the testimonies of history as well, you know, really led me down this path of, of considering what does God desire for us? What does God desire for the church? And what does God desire for men and women to be serving and ministering and leading together? And I think for me, a lot of those experiences came out of when I was in seminary and in many instances being taught or mentored by women. And whether it was our dean at that time, who was a woman, our other professors or other pastors, I think I look back and reflect on that. And my thought is, this was God at work. And this was someone who was teaching me and part of how God was forming me. And it really started to help me to unpack a lot of this. And because I didn't hear any of those stories of history, all the four women and even more that Xenia had mentioned, let alone any other stories, it really, you know, it made me not question. I just 
kind of accepted it wholesale that, oh, this was the kind of role of men and women. But then it wasn't until later that, you know, the spirit was kind of just nudging me and, and kind of disrupting me in very good ways to be able to like think through particularly the roles in different ways. You know, how did these roles in particular get formed and realizing such a deeply woven impact of culture and of history and how we've adopted different ideologies and frameworks over the years have kind of led us to these moments. And it's still to this day, you know, something that is needed to have more conversation about. And to this day that it is something that still exists in terms of, of what's happening in the Chinese church. And for me, as I've been thinking about this more and, and just listening more to stories of others, what I've kind of noticed is uh, on the one hand, hearing from many that the opportunities are just not afforded women, it's the same as men. And there is not that focus on calling, giftedness, or leadership, but rather it kind of always goes back to you know, a specific understanding of men and women's roles. And there isn't this space to discern together what does calling and giftedness and leadership look like, regardless of whether it's a man or woman. And then the second side of it too is because these things have not been really ever discussed or really dialogued about and brought into the church, that, you know, these things have just kind of been ideas that we've adopted fully, that there isn't. There also isn't this imagination of what does it mean for a woman to lead. And, you know, this came over the last couple of weeks where I've had conversations with other pastors and I asked them just quickly about like, hey, like, you know, what, how has God been leading you in your life and ministry? And one of the conversations that came up was about ordination. And some of them just said, you know what, you know, I am just wanting to serve in whatever capacity that I have and I don't really see kind of the need for ordination. And these were coming from women who were essentially leading congregations. And for me, I was like, I can understand their servant hardness to want to serve. And I can definitely, you know, be encouraged by that. But there's not this sense that like ordination is also an affirmation of calling. There's not this sense that ordination is also a sense of like, you know, as a people, we recognize that this is the person that God is calling us to to pastor and lead us and to be ministering to us. And so with that, I think it has brought about so much more in terms of like, there's not those opportunities afforded women, but also the imagination is still you know, not there and it needs more space to continue to work through these things. And in that sense, you know, how do we confront things that are more culturally shaped and whether it be stereotypes or roles that have been carried over what does it mean between kind of the, the dynamic between men and women leading together? And how does that look? And I'll kind of bring this up too, is, you know, wherever you fall on the spectrum of kind of complementarian and, you know, egalitarian, there is a part of that where culture itself has influenced the way we've kind of understood those terms. And our friend from, you know, across the sea, uh, Dr. Justin C., he said this in our interview with him, but he said like, you know, when ideas like complementarianism is, are just adopted into kind of like the, the Asian culture, you know, isn't, and, and, you know, it's kind of just tweaked, <laughs> I guess, in, in a sense, isn't it just patriarchy? <laughs> and when he said that, I was like, oh man, that's a way to kind of, you know, bring it about that, that we really need to talk through more. 
And, you know, for me, I was like, oh, you know, that's really interesting to think about how the adoption of a perspective has been shaped by culture and then, you know, has kind of been co-opted in a bit, in a way. But I think for me too, when I was learning from women pastors and hearing the stories of women in history and also those who are serving presently, you know, one of the things that struck me in the past in, in my own kind of journey through that is, is one time hearing, actually not even one time, multiple times hearing that, like, you know what, like, like God has given men and women different giftings and therefore like it is important, like if you're learning from women that you're recognizing that you're learning the feminine qualities. And that always kind of like didn't sit with me really well, because for me, I was like, you know what, as God gifts and as God has called and as God has placed women in leadership and they are leading, then, you know, is there really a necessity to really kind of say that this is a male type of quality and this is a feminine type of quality? And that was, you know, something that, you know, never sat well with me. And then the kind of the use of scripture over the, the, the history to you know, subjugate women and such like that, uh, or oppress has always been something that also has been like, that's doesn't really line up with the spirit of scriptural narrative. And that's always been uh, interesting to kind of unpack. And so with that being said, you know, all the things, you know, that Zena shared with, with those stories not being highlighted or even known with things that are still culturally shaped in our lives, in our churches, has led us to these moments of why these type of conversations are still so necessary. And, uh, you know, I would encourage you, you know, our past episode that uh, we had someone share a little bit about, you know, how to start those kind of conversations, how to be an ally, how to be able to use, you know, position of privilege and of leadership to be able to invite everyone into the conversation and especially invite women to the conversation so that we can hear their voices and to be part of shaping what comes ahead is so necessary. And this is what Xenia was alluding to earlier, but the church that I'm serving at right now, our former senior pastor was such an advocate for women in ministry and the ordination of women that he really was influential in Toronto towards the, the first women being ordained in Toronto. And this is not that long ago. You know, this is only a couple of decades ago. And so with that being said, you know, these are things that are still being shaped and in motion. And, you know, with all that on the process of, you know, how can we continue to be uh, attuned to how God is calling us as, as men and women in, in ministry together? And, you know, what will this mean for future generations of the Chinese church? Is there a new way? Is there something that is breaking through? You know, for Xenia and myself and for Shu and Bernard, who couldn't be here today, we believe there is and, and that God is doing something in this area. And he is kind of stirring things up in, in ways that are pushing us forward. Some of these conversations are difficult and hard to engage in, but we believe that you know, they're necessary and we're taking small steps along the way and seeing where God calls us into. And so with that, you know, I, I'm really thinking about in, in particular you know, what I've seen over the years and how all that has kind of culminated to kind of, we're now in, you know, in the 2020s, if you can believe it or not, <laughs> right? And, and we're, we're, we're talking about this in, in this way and we're, we, we, we celebrate you know, the steps that have been taken, but we also see kind of a need for unpacking and, and peeling away some of those ideologies that are still not, you know, uh, affirming women, women in their calling and women into leadership and seeing, you know, women lead pastors and, and teachers and such. So I think for me, that's how I wanted to kind of bridge over to kind of talking to a bit today. 
I want to ask quickly, Xenia, you know, like I've kind of shared some of my experiences and, you know, you shared a lot of history. Did you have anything in particular to add to what I shared? Perhaps even correct me in what I shared. <laughs> no, I, I think the more discouraging for me is that some of the women that I've looked up to have been so beaten down that they will just say, you know, you keep your head down, just do the thing that God has for you. And everything else is, you know, our reward is in heaven. And I, I remember one conversation I had with someone where I said, well, you know, your congregation is like really big. It's the size of a church in size of a large church in Canada. Have you ever thought about being a senior pastor? She goes, oh no, women can't be senior pastor. I said, why? And she goes, women are too emotional. And I, I think, yeah, it sucks. Uh, as I said, I was writing this paper and I was looking at some of the abuse statistics of women in ministry and they were horrifyingly high as well. Chinese women in, in ministry, I should say. So I, I think, you know, I don't feel like my path is any bigger than anybody else's, but in some ways I'm quite cognizant of the fact that because I'm a woman in ministry and as a prominent Chinese woman in ministry, there will be younger women watching me. And I'm hopeful that I'll be able to do them justice and to be able to follow Jesus well and to say to them, hey, like you could you could actually follow after Jesus in the ways that he is calling you. And I'm really thankful for Shu and John and Bernard. I felt nothing but support from them. They are constantly making opportunities and space for me. And in a world where that doesn't often happen, it's something that I'm very grateful for. And you know, there are other men like that in my life. And like John says, it's it's about men and women together in ministry. And I think we lose when we say, you know, women are better or men are better because it's it's not true. We need one another. And so, you know, all this stuff that's been coming out with Kristen Dumay's book or Beth Allison Barr's book, I'm thinking, you know, we're not out to get you. <laughs> we just want to follow Jesus. That'll be it for our episode today. Man, there's so much to unpack and to continue to reflect on and continue to learn from these stories. What did you think? We'd love to hear from you. You can always reach us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or by email. Our email is contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your impression of these four stories and what place you believe they have in terms of how we shape our understanding of women in leadership. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share it in person. That helps us to get this conversation out there. Please also check out our good friends over at New Leaf Network. They have an amazing podcast and tons of resources, learning centers that happen every month. So definitely check them out as well. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast. And on behalf of all of us, thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time. 